Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans called Lifestyle of the Gospel with a message titled Christians and Their Enemies. So turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I was young and naive, I used to say I can get along with anyone. And not only was I naive, but I also lacked a robust theology of evil, both in myself and in others. I also lacked an understanding of the conflict that was a part of the Christian ministry. Here's what I've come to know. If you live well, you will have enemies. See, I love a poem by the 19th century English poet Charles McKay. Here's what it says. You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. See, whether it's Joseph or Moses or Joshua or David or the righteous kings of Judah or the apostles who were martyred, or Jesus who died on a cross while hearing his enemies slander him to his dying breath. If you enter into the contest for the kingdom of God, you will have enemies. Now, to be sure, some people have enemies, not because they're righteous, but because they're out for themselves and they're willing to harm others just to get ahead. And if you're one of those people, take no solace from what I'm about to say. But on the other hand, some people are so busy trying to please everybody They never stand up for anything and are surely not a threat for truth and righteousness. For them, having no enemies, as Charles McKay would say, is no boast. Consider the words of 1 Timothy 3, 12-13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That explains David's words well in Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Or Jesus' words in Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And for that reason, when Jesus told us to love our enemies, he was assuming that we would have them. It's our response to our enemies and not the fact that we have enemies that makes all the difference. Live life as Christ calls you to live it, and I promise you will have enemies. We've been studying Romans 12 to 16, a series I have entitled, The Lifestyle of the Gospel. And today I want to talk about Christians and their enemies. I'm reading Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in this passage, we find a series of commands. I I counted at least 16 of them, depending on how you count. 
But we can also see that four of the commands are strongly negative commands or words of warning directly related to how we relate to evildoers. Verse 14 commands, do not curse them. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil. Then in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And then finally, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Now, surrounding those stern warnings comes a series of positive commands. But for the sake of understanding the whole, I will use those four negative commands as my anchor points. Then we will consider the series of commands that attach themselves to each one of those anchor points. So, let's start with the first of them in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, before we come to the act of blessing, let's consider what's happening to the believer. He or she is being persecuted. That is, an enemy is inflicting either the threat of death or the reality of suffering or inflicting injury in some way. That is, if it were not for this evil person, this injury would never have happened. You know, persecution always results in loss. The person who is persecuted has been diminished in some way. She or he has been damaged. It's often the case that what has been lost can't be restored. The harm, the damage, the injury, the loss, all of that remains. It's not taken away. You know, many are the people who have been twice harmed by persecution. First, the persecutor harms them. And then the persecutor lives in their imagination as they seethe in hatred of that person. Bitterness ensues. You know, cursing our persecutors takes a number of forms, but it all boils down to one central wish. We want evil to befall our persecutors, and so we wait for something to come along that will allow that person to suffer in the way that he or she has caused us to suffer. But followers of Jesus are not permitted to curse their enemies. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44. And I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here in Romans 12, 14, the command to bless our enemies recalls this teaching of Jesus. Is he cursing our enemies? Well, that might involve harsh words or it might be calling God to do something to them. But instead, we call God to bless them. Now, before I go on, let me say, this is very difficult. See, I say this because a great many of us are concerned that, that if we bless our enemies, or if God calls us to do it, well, then it seems to us, God is not a God of justice. And it also fills us with a horrible suspicion that, that God doesn't care about our injuries. How can we pray this way? Because this seems to suggest that the evildoers prosper and the victims remain injured. How can such an arrangement please God? Now, look, the reason I raise this is because victims of evildoers genuinely feel this way. Should we ignore their cries for justice? And the answer is, of course not. But I'll address this. But at this juncture, if you're a follower of Christ who has been persecuted or injured by another, you obey Christ and bless your persecutor. Commit to doing it for if no other reason than simply this, you are an obedient child of God. Now to the second point. When we bless our persecutors, this act of blessing others is how we approach all of life. So look now at verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See, did you notice that none of these commands are about how we should treat our enemies? 
Rather, they are commands about how we treat all people. Let's see if we can take these commands one at a time. First, rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, that's an interesting command. You know, it was the great preacher John Chrysostom who said of that command that it requires more of a high Christian temper to rejoice with them that do rejoice than to weep with them that weep. Well, he said that because he believed that it requires an especially hard heart not to be moved by some of the calamities that fall on people. But he said it requires a noble soul to rejoice with people. For one, it demands that we are free from envy. And for another, it demands that we feel pleasure for someone who is doing well. It demands we don't feel resentful, but we feel pleasure for their pleasure. But that's the Christian lifestyle. We don't just bless our enemies, we also bless our friends. And we seek to bless all people that we have dealings with. We seek to bless our country. We seek to bless members of the human race. And weeping for the loss of others and rejoicing over the successes of others are a part of the basic lifestyle of the gospel. Now to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. You know, in the original language, that can be translated as think the same thing to one another. You know, one translation I know renders this passage, have the same concern for everyone. Now, that, of course, would mean that we have the same concern for the ones that are succeeding as we have for the ones who are suffering. The well-being of others is the concern of every single follower of Jesus. And the last three commands seem to round this out well. Don't be haughty, that is, don't be proud. Then associate with the lowly, that is, make friends with people who are not as highly educated as you are, or who don't have the same skilled labor as you have or who might not have been trained in the professional arts that you are. And then finally, never be wise in your own sight. Don't be a narcissist. Don't be enamored by yourself. Now that series of commands then is the focus of the Christian lifestyle. It's a lifestyle with an outer focus, a lifestyle that seeks the good of others. And once we rehearse that kind of a life, we need to translate that into the situation of our relationship with our enemies. Back to the Bible Canada is dedicated to the clear presentation of God's good news. The comfort and joy of the gospel are not seasonal. All year round, this ministry carries the power of God's Word, which transforms hearts and homes, always striving to use resources to expand our opportunity to share the gospel and connect with people through an ever-increasing lineup of Bible teaching programming. For this purpose, we rely upon the generosity and partnership of God's people to fulfill this great mission. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's Word and a trust in kingdom work. You may be considering a year-end donation for this purpose. In advance, thank you. Placing our gifts into the activity of God will never disappoint. Call us today to make your year-end ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. When we are invested more in the welfare of others than in our own, well, the Bible says this sets the stage for how we handle our persecutors. 
The reflex to bless is so built into our lifestyle, almost like muscle memory, so that when we see evildoers, our first reflex is not to damn them, but to redeem them. But still, that's difficult. For what of justice and what of our loss? Well, let's continue to hold on to that question as we work our way through the passage. Now, up until now, we have considered only the first anchor point of our response to evildoers, and that is, don't curse them. Instead, bless them. Let's now move from that basic command to the second very practical command. Verse 17a says, repay no one evil for evil. Now, as before, we see that Paul is simply repeating the teaching of Jesus on this matter. But in Jesus, it seems even more pointed. In Matthew 5.39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, I know that some people have gotten hung up on that point. Would we, for instance, tell a woman whose husband is beating her, Do not resist him, but whenever he strikes you on one cheek, just turn the other. Well, of course, we wouldn't say that to her. If we're loving at all, we would want to rescue her and protect her and help her to live a life that's free from that kind of abuse. And so it seems to me that when Jesus says, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek, he means what Paul teaches, don't repay a person with evil for the evil that they have done. You know, fascinatingly enough, the teaching of Jesus on this matter begins with the words, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the evil person. Now, many people don't understand Jesus, and so they've argued that Jesus was condemning the Old Testament law, which taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's definitely not the case. When Jesus began his teaching about revenge, he prefaced it by saying, do not think I have come to abolish the law. So at the outset, he seems to be saying, don't think that I've come to overthrow the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then he quotes the law, and he seems to contradict the law. How do we understand Jesus here? He does seem confusing, but actually he's not. Let me explain. When the Old Testament law taught an eye for an eye, it's not speaking about revenge. It was speaking about what happens in the court of law. When someone steals another man's ox, the law mandated that he had to repay the victim for the loss and then add a third to the valuation. But that was it. I mean, you couldn't chop off his hand for stealing. An eye for an eye meant that the punishment for a crime would have to fit the crime, but the law also mandated that the damages inflicted on the criminal would be limited. You understand? That's how justice works. But here's where Jesus' teaching came in. Justice in the courts was one thing, but no one was allowed to take the law into their own hands. You couldn't apply the law, an eye for an eye, into your interpersonal affairs. You were not free if someone stole from you, for instance, to now steal from them. The matter of retribution and restoration, that was a legal matter and was never to be made a personal matter. And that's what Paul is also saying. You're not permitted to take the law into your own hands. If someone strikes you, you have no right to strike them. Well, except if you were to defend yourself. But if someone slanders you, you have no right to slander in return. Someone burns down your house, you can't burn down his or hers. Now, this is not the Christian lifestyle. Instead, Paul commands believers as follows. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, Christians don't do harm. 
Even when we are harmed, we don't harm. We're not harmers, we're blessers. We're not those who slander, we're those who heal relationships. It's just a mark of the believer. We don't trade in destruction. We trade in peaceable and healthy relationships. But again, some of us are plagued with the idea that this might all be fine, but still, we're talking about evildoers here. Aren't evildoers getting away with something? You see, if you apply the Christian ethic to those who are enemies, all you're doing is giving our enemies the power to triumph over us. So let's go to our third anchor point in this passage. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Again, it's a direct command. Don't you dare take revenge when harm has been done to you. But now, for the first time in the passage, our nagging question of justice is under discussion. The passage for the first time says, leave it to the wrath of God. See, suddenly the idea of justice comes into play. God, we're told, is provoked when people are persecuted. God is angry with the mistreatment of his people, and his is a deep, settled, righteous fury. Suddenly the world looks different. God is involved in the conflict between the wicked and the righteous. And then in order to bolster this point, Paul quotes from the law, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. The passage says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Later on in verse 39 of that same chapter, we read, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And then further on in verse 43, for he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. It's been said that the justice of God seems to move forward so slowly, but it grinds so exceedingly fine. But even the idea that the justice of God moves slowly is so only in our eyes. God's justice comes at the very moment in which he has decided to act. And furthermore, the final judgment of God in which all flesh will be judged is close at hand. No one's getting away with anything. As the book of Hebrews reminds us, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, at this point in time, all of us are brought to the point where we must consider the mercies of God. Have we not all sinned against God? And are we not all by nature the objects of wrath? And has Christ not suffered the wrath of God on our behalf? Were we not blessed when we deserve to be cursed? Now, I need to stop here for a moment and consider the criticism that's, that's often directed at verse 19. See, is it really true that Paul is telling God's people, don't take revenge? You don't have to. God will take revenge soon enough. You see, the critics charge that if that's our attitude, we really haven't forgiven at all. After all, we're simply, you know, murmuring under our breath, God's going to get you soon enough. We content ourselves with images of hellfire, just waiting for the day to come. Let me respond to that criticism. First, what kind of a world would it be if there were no final justice from God? What if those who destroyed the lives of others never stood before the bar of God's justice? What then? Well, then the world would simply end with cruelty and crime and injustice and evil. That would end all things. But God is righteous. He will not allow the evildoer to get off scot-free. And furthermore, this is confusing for people who have no concept of evil. But furthermore, there's a world of difference between revenge and justice. 
Revenge is simply concern for oneself, but justice is a concern for righteousness. There's a world of difference between the desire for revenge and the desire for justice. And so, child of God, if you've been injured, remember this. In the end, justice will prevail. God will see to that. No one is getting away with anything. So let's go to the last two verses, verses 20 to 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this matter of burning coals has been puzzling to so many. How is feeding my enemy like heaping burning coals on his head? Does Paul mean that when we do this, the evildoer feels ashamed and is led to repentance? Well, we would hope so, but it often is not the case. See, here's what I think Paul means. The good that believers do to evildoers only compounds the guilt of the wrongdoers, and it makes their final punishment all the worse. Yes, they will be judged, but this has made it worse. And yet it is the desire of all believers that evildoers would come to repentance and sense the same grace that we have in Christ. That's the Christian lifestyle. Because we believe in God, we are free to bless all men, even our enemies. John, as you're speaking, I was thinking, you know, what this only makes sense to those that believe that there's a day of judgment that believe that there's eternity ahead of them. Those that are only living for today and believe there's nothing beyond this life, it's hard for them to conjure up that this could be true. Yeah, I know that's why I think so many people, you know, live in such bitterness. I mean, the bitterness they feel is, uh, you know, my, my issue has not been redressed. There's been no justice done. I'm left harmed and that's the end of the matter. And so the basic inequity of matters just fills so many people with either rage or, you know, I think they're in despair because of it. I think so many of us have wounds that just will never heal because that's how we feel. A Christian doctrine of God's judgment and recognizing that Christ has treated us not like our sins deserve, leave us both open for the repentance of our enemies or awaiting for God's final call of justice. Ben, I, I think we can be free from our enemies because of that and live our lives in the glorious freedom of God and we can turn around and bless them because we believe in God's promises. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series in the book of Romans right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His purpose for our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. Share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.